The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 900 years ago this month, one of the most significant maritime tragedies in English history took place. The white ship, containing the cream of Anglo-Norman society, went down off the coast of France, leaving Henry I without a male heir and throwing the future of the realm into chaos. The story of the white ship has been retold by the best-selling author and historian Charles Spencer in a new book, and in today's episode, he explores these dramatic events with fellow historian Dan Jones. It's my enormous pleasure and indeed a great privilege to be here with Charles Spencer, uh, a superb historian, the author of, I think, six books, uh, now seven, um, including the history of the Spencer family, his family, Allthorpe, the house in which uh, we're sitting at the moment, um, books about the uh, Battle of Blenheim, Killers of the King and To Catch a King, fantastic cinematic stories <laughs> about uh, about the... Um, revolution of the 17th century in England, but now the author of a book that's very close to my heart and indeed my interests uh, uh, because it concerns the Middle Ages and it concerns one of the most dramatic and scenic and cinematic uh, events in the Middle Ages. That's the sinking of the white ship in 1120. 900 years ago, it's been described as the medieval Titanic. Um, But you make an argument in the book, Charles, that it's even more uh, meaningful in the course of history than the Titanic itself. Um, so I wonder if we can begin, Charles, by you telling us in November 1120, what happened? What was the white ship? And and uh, sum up the story for us. Well, um, it, yes, in, in the same week, actually, uh, that 500 years later, the passengers of the Mayflower were getting off, uh, something even... Uh, well, in European terms, cataclysmic happened to the English royal family because on the white ship were 300 people and uh, among them were some of the most uh, important figures in in the land, in the Anglo-Norman society, really. And the most important by a a very long way was the sole legitimate male heir to King Henry I. And uh, Henry I is really the backbone of this story. It's a true sort of version of a Greek tragedy whereby the king has over 20 years when he suddenly sees the throne, he's built up a a system of governance that works and he's quelled all sorts of problems and he's already starting to hand over power to his heir, William Aethling. And William is the designated king and Duke of Normandy uh, for the next generation. He gets on board a ship parties like crazy with his friends uh, for several hours and gets everyone drunk on board, including, unfortunately, the helmsman. And so a mile outside Barfleur, uh, the white ship, which is one of the finest ships of its age, uh, hits a rock. And there is one survivor, which is very fortunate, you know, to have in in such a cataclysmic uh, maritime disaster, one man did survive. So we know what happened in the water uh, as people struggled to survive. Having written a lot of excellent books about um, history of the 17th century mm. and, and uh, you know, sort of early modern history, why did you decide that you wanted to write 12th century history? <laughs> I mean, this, this seems like quite a leap. It is a huge leap. It took me a long time to feel at home in the 12th century. Um, when I was at Oxford, actually, it was that that period was my period. Um, when I was doing a history degree, I I, I looked at my papers and that was the one that was easily my strongest. Um, So I've always loved it. I like the the rawness of the Middle Ages and the brutality. I'm not approving the brutality, but I find it fascinating. And as a historian, I've always found the most engaging part of being a, a writer of any sort of history, really, is people watching 
And um, so seeing what people were doing to each other, uh, the blindings, the castrations, and all of this sort of thing to stay in power, I find that fascinating. I find the role of women at that time intriguing too, because the women had a fair amount of power, but they could never actually, as, as becomes clear in my story, they could never really be accepted as the ruling queen. Um, I say that because the, the person who became Henry I's heir after the loss of his son and his inability to have any more uh, legitimate children. I mean, he, is, he, he had 22 illegitimate children, but they were not allowed to be considered as heirs because the church was quite strong at the time. So his only daughter was, uh, he left her to be queen, but that resulted in a civil war. So I, 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 it's an intriguing period, the Middle Ages. I, I, I love the, the rawness of it all. Um, I'd written four books on the uh, 17th century before that, uh, but I didn't really feel like I was a historian of the Stuart period. They were just stories that appealed to me. And that's what I've always written. So my career as a historian, which is 20 odd years now, all stems from chance, really. I have a, a close friend of mine who's a very good novelist and I went to a book launch of his, he's called Edward St. Aubin, and the Patrick Melrose series is based on his books, actually on the, the very successful TV series. And um, I wrote a thank you letter to his agent uh, for, for a lovely party to launch one of his books. And he wrote back and said, I've never done this before, but I like the way you write your your letters, and I think you should think about becoming a writer. So I accidentally, then I, I spotted an anniversary, actually. You mentioned it in your introduction, which was the Battle of Blenheim, um, and that happened in 1704. So my first proper book was in 2004 to celebrate that. And this latest book has come about from a similar thing, really. I mean, I, I happened to go as a last-minute keynote speaker to a talk for uh, American and uh, Australian history fans who are touring England. And they had a dinner at Leeds Castle um, in Kent. And somebody dropped out. And the organiser, Alison Weir, who's a, a very prolific historian, she asked me to stand in and do a, a, a talk about the Queens of England. And it was a knowledgeable crowd. They knew everything I had to say about Bodicea or Queen Victoria or whatever. Uh, but what they, I thought I'd throw in somebody who should have been queen but wasn't, and that is the, the sister, Matilda, the sister of the boy who drowned in the white ship. And, you know, I just saw them all snap to attention. They really did find that an interesting story. And then I did the same talk again when somebody wasn't available for another history talk. And then I just happened to look it up online and saw that the anniversary was coming up this year. And I thought, wow, I really want to resurrect this. It's such a dramatic tale, not, not necessarily the way I tell it, but the, it, it, the, the, the fact that the king had everything riding on this one son, which I don't think was a coincidence. He was one of four brothers, three of whom had fought each other like crazy. And I think he probably thought it was quite tidy to have just the single heir with no obvious threat to him. But of course, the threat was mortality. And um, Henry I never really recovered from this. And as he, he remarried two months after the tragedy, um, a beautiful young girl from uh, Louvain, and kept her with him at all times, but they did not have any children. Um, it was clearly something to do with his side because she went on to remarry and had seven children. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this sort of tragedy of this man who had so many, had two dozen children, but he couldn't produce what he had to do in dynastic terms, which was a son. So there are so many elements to this story. What seems to be a, a simple mm. a simple shipwreck, a tragic shipwreck with, with loss of, of scores of lives, um, in fact takes us deep into the world of England in the uh, 12th century, uh, Normandy, France. Uh, it takes us then forward into a civil war. So let, let's, let's try and unpack this mm -hmm. um, in, in its right order. Tell us first, what was England like? What was, the, what was the political situation between England and Normandy at the beginning of the 12th century? We're not very far away now from William the Conqueror's conquest of England in 1066, Battle of Hastings, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the uh, harrying of the North, and all, 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 all these parts of, of William's conquest. What was the situation after William the Conqueror had died? Who was ruling England? Who was ruling Normandy? How connected were they? 
Well, yes. Well, the key thing, actually, was a divided inheritance. So William the Conqueror had long fought against his oldest son, uh, Robert, uh, known as Robert Curthose, uh, short legs, uh, effectively. Why was he called Curthose? Uh, well, he had very short, fat legs, and his father used to tease him about it. So the start of a not particularly happy father-son relationship, you have to imagine. But it was in bloodshed. You know, they, they, they went to war against each other because Robert uh, was a, a very brave soldier. He'd done very well in the crusade, first crusade. He, he was unable to say no to his hangers-on, and he had a very expensive life. He had wanted control of Normandy before his father died. Um, and at the time of William the Conqueror's death, uh, William was uh, persuaded on his deathbed to leave Normandy to his eldest son, as was the Norman custom. But he felt entitled to give his conquest of England to who he wanted to, and that was his second son, who was his favourite, William Rufus. And so the two brothers were in and out, they were sort of in and out of each other's um, favour. There were moments when they united, and they particularly united against their youngest brother, um, Henry, who would become Henry I. And Henry hadn't been left any land by his father. He'd been left an enormous fortune of just cash. And the brothers uh, were determined to cut him out of his wider potential inheritance. You know, at this time, young men of royal or aristocratic birth could get their mother's property. The, the property rights at this time are very straightforward, but from our point of view, quite unusual. And so you have two brothers either side of the channel who are really at odds, uh, essentially. And then you have the third brother who is fluctuating between the two, really sort of siding with whoever is going to show him more favour. And eventually, at the time of William Rufus's death in a hunting accident in the summer of 1100, um, Robert Curtos is coming back from the First Crusade. And everyone is assuming that he'll become king. But Henry, the youngest son, races to Winchester and grabs the treasury and then gets to uh, London and is crowned King Henry I. And he knows that this means trouble. And the following year, uh, Robert Curthose arrives with an invading army in the south of England to take England. Uh, but the two, in fact, what is an interesting subplot of this entire period is the power of the barons. They are so they're able to dictate policy and they decide that they do not want to die fighting for either of these brothers. And they uh, agree a treaty in 1101, the Treaty of Alton. And in that, the two, two brothers acknowledge that Robert's going to go back to Normandy, um, Henry's going to keep England, and that either of them, if they have a legitimate son and the other one fails to, that that single legitimate son will be heir to both England and Normandy. And that, that is a, the backbone, really, of my story, because Robert Curthose is then defeated by his brother in battle in 1106, and Henry I becomes Duke of Normandy, and Robert Curthose spends uh, the, the remaining um, th 30 years of his life in prison. But he does have a son who is another William, just like Henry's William, uh, he is the potential heir to both of the uh, realms. And so you have a competing force, really, of Henry I's son, who's the one who ends up on the white ship, uh, is the centre of all Henry's ambitions. And meanwhile, people who are not enamoured of Henry I's rule, uh, particularly in Normandy, they support the competing nephew called William. Why is there such a desire among this family to rule both England and Normandy? Of course, England, prior to this, had been ruled from places like Denmark. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be part of that sort of North Sea um, uh, world. Why had it become important after the Norman Conquest for one ruler to try and rule both England and Normandy? Surely it would have been easier, as William the Conqueror seems to have envisaged, just to sort of split them in half. Yes, well, from the outside, you'd think that. But the real problem was, I've, I've touched already on the power of the leading aristocrats, and they had divided loyalty. They were um, they had done homage to the King of England for their lands in England and to the Duke of Normandy for their Norman lands. And so you had an automatic conflict of interest by really very powerful people. And I hadn't appreciated quite how powerful these people could be um, there's a, a figure in the book called Robert de Belem, mm. who's a properly powerful uh, figure, 
both in in Normandy and and France generally, actually, but Normandy and England. Um, his mother was a, a a mighty heiress in her own right. The father was given enormous chunks of uh, difficult parts of England, you know, the, the south coast and the, and the border with Wales to try and shore up the conquest uh, militarily. He got both of those. And, um, you know, he, he, he was able to... Well, he was a, a, a huge thorn in Henry I's side because he was so powerful. Also, when Henry I became king, nobody really respected him at all. He was seen as this rather odd brother. Um, he was literate, which was unusual in the uh, royal family. And he was passionate about hunting. And he was seen as this strange kid, you know? And then suddenly he's king of England. And the first thing he decides to do is uh, control the aristocracy in England. And he takes on de Bellem and corners him, uh, hits him with loads of uh, legal writs and summons him to be judged by the king. And it gives you an idea of de Bellem's self-importance and his actual power that he, he was prepared to go to war over this. And eventually, after a series of sieges, um, de Bellem and his brothers, who were very powerful too, were forced to hand over the keys to their castles and were exiled. But then they pop up again in Normandy and cause all sorts of problems then. Um, and, and de Bellem, you know, deeply unpopular figure among the aristocracy. He was incredibly cruel. I think he was free of conscience because he he didn't believe in Christianity. So he didn't think he was going to be held to uh, a, a judgment after his death. And he was criticised one Lent for not observing Lent. And so he said, oh, I, uh, you know, it's about fasting, isn't it? And so he, it, that was uh, agreed. And so he decided to starve 300 of his prisoners uh, as, to show that he was observing Lent. You describe uh, Robert de Bellem in... Um in bloodthirsty detail in, yes. in your book. Uh, and and you've obviously got an eye for these characters and, and the, the cruelty of them. I mean, you're helped, I think, by the, the sources from the time, which Fantastic. are, uh, you yeah. know, these wonderful chronicles. It must, is it, in a strange way, although we're talking about sort of sadistic murderers, is it, it must be fun to have these sort of characters. It is, it is fun and it's incredibly useful. I find when I'm trying to explain a trend, it's so much easier for the reader to give them a, a character to hang their hat on. So de Bellem is just one of uh, quite a lot of very powerful and deeply unpleasant um, aristocrats. Uh, so I just, I do make quite a lot of him, as, as, you, as you touch on, as do the chroniclers at the time. They all loathed him. Um, really appalling things he did. He had a, uh, a quarrel with the, the father of one of his godsons. And as a punishment, he, with his own fingers, ripped out the eyes of the godson. You know, so he's obviously deeply troubled man. But I think, I, I, I don't sort of revel in the gore at all, but I think it tells you mm. quite a lot about the time that people could do that. Tell us a little bit about Henry I. So we're now in, in the early 12th century, 1100, Henry I, the youngest of William the Conqueror's sons, becomes king. Um, he himself is no stranger to brutality. Uh, <laughs> tell, he, he's uh, at, at one point in his life committed a sort of dreadful deed in the town of Rouen, the capital of Normandy. Tell us a little bit about, about that uh, incident, and then <clears throat> about who Henry I was and what his uh, his kind of vision of kingship was. Yes, I, I think Henry I is possibly one of the most interesting historical figures I've ever come across because it's such a human story. So he is the fourth son. There's a the, 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 one of the sons of William the Conqueror dies in uh, dies young in a hunting accident. Not William Rufus. He dies when he's middle aged, but. He is this obscure figure. He's meant, he's destined to be a sort of well-bred uh, non-entity. He's not given, he's not made the count of anywhere, whereas the other sons are. He is just, he's possibly destined for the church. There's a theory about that because that's possibly why he was literate. Um, but he wasn't meant to amount to much. And yet he becomes a titan of European history in the first 35 years of the 12th century. He takes on the King of France. But as a boy, his uh, fortunes are very much wrapped up in trying to find a way to matter. And, uh, and I've mentioned to Belém, and uh, as you will be unsurprised to hear, uh, the people of Domfront, uh, a, 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 a castle and, and city uh, in Normandy, they decided they didn't want de Belém as their lord because he was too depraved. 
and they asked Henry to be the replacement. And he took it on very seriously. And that was his foothold and power. And then he eventually built up his military reputation. He was a very able soldier and diplomat. I mean, he's very clever. He deals with the great questions of the age are often bound up in religion and the relationship between lords and princes and the papacy and bishops. And he is a cunning operator. At one stage, he's supporting his brother, Robert Curtos, Duke of Normandy, uh, against a rebellion uh, in Rouen, uh, which has been brought about by the third brother, William Rufus, bribing some influential citizens there, uh, including this man called Conan. And there's this absolutely revealing moment about the character of Henry I when, after winning Rouen for his brother, uh, his brother sadly is hiding in a church at the time of this bloody fight in the streets. Uh, Henry insists that the leading man, Conan, is brought to him in chains. And Conan thinks, oh, you know, I'll pay a ransom and it'll be okay. And Henry decides that he's so furious at the breach of this man's word. He's promised to obey the Duke of Normandy and he's broken his word and he is, his conduct is beyond the pale. And Henry is recorded as walking up the grand tower of Rouen with this prisoner, pointing out in the distance, there's the land you wanted to have and there's the river filled with fish that you wanted to have. And they go higher and higher. And you can sense Conan getting a little bit nervous by this stage. And then he offers all the silver and gold that his family has to be given his life. And Henry refuses him. That refuses him time to make his peace with God and hurls him off the top of uh, the tower at Rouen, uh, which the locals called um, Conan's Leap after that, that tower. Uh, but anyway, that uh, it shook people up. Most people thought that was really good and uh, quite a sort of uh, princely way to behave. But others realized, my God, this man's capable of quite a lot of uh, cruelty and harshness. And that's really his legacy in history. I mean, it's, it's interesting over the ages, if you look at biographies of Henry, um, the Victorians found him really a, a deeply unpleasant man. They had moral problems with him having so many mistresses and children, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but he was a very effective king. He's a proper medieval ruler in that he kept the peace. You know, after, well, for the last 29 years of his reign in England, nobody kept a castle against him or rose in rebellion. He, he, he kept the peace and the, and the people applauded him for that. They said that a, a young girl laden with treasure could walk from one end of the kingdom to the other without being um, held up. And that, that was an incredible thing for a king to give to his people, that level of peace. Um, and he had a very clear idea about finance, very modern, really. And he formed the Exchequer, which still exists today uh, as the treasury mechanism of England, whereby the sheriffs of each county would be uh, held to account twice a year by uh, royal representatives to bring in the tax and the fines and the money due to the crown. Uh, and it was placed on a, a, a large table with a checkered cloth on, which gave the name of the exchequer. But it was a very modern device. And um, I have to say, there, there are some times there where you just, I, I actually cannot understand the man. He had a very clear view that the code of conduct that was accepted at the time had to be adhered to. He was very clever in using his illegitimate children diplomatically for marriages across uh, Europe. And one of his daughters he gave to a, uh, a, a troublesome count and, uh, in Normandy. And he made that count, basically his grandchildren, his granddaughters become hostages to another family to bring about peace around the, the city of Ivry. And Henry's daughter blinded the boy who was her hostage. So the father of the boy went to Henry and said, well, now I have to blind your granddaughters. And you think, this is one of the most powerful men in Europe. Why couldn't he buy this off? Why couldn't he say, look, of course that shouldn't have happened, but here is land, money, whatever you need. But no, Henry agreed to his two granddaughters being not only blinded, but having their noses cut off. And you just think, I can't, that's, that there are parts of Henry that are absolutely impossible to understand, and that is one of them. 
But leaving these strange incidents, which I can't, I still, I mean, I'm shocked to even talk about it, actually. Um, leaving those to one side, he was a very effective ruler. And that's what people craved in those days. And in fact, he knew that the, the, the sort of, the, the, the subplot of my book is the importance of having an established, acknowledged heir, because that was the one person who could bring about order. If you didn't have that, then you opened the gates of hell. So this brings us on to William the Etheling, mm. Henry's only legitimate son. More than 20 illegitimate children, but he only has two legitimate children, one yes. boy and one girl, <clears throat> uh, William and Matilda. Tell us a little bit about William the Aetheling, the strange word, what does it mean, uh, and, and what Henry's plan is for this one son that he has. Yes, the Aetheling is a very odd term, but basically it's an Anglo-Saxon term. It predates the conquest, and it means that it doesn't mean you're definitely going to be king, but it means you're from a, a central enough line of the royal family as a male that you are an absolutely prime candidate for it. In terms of William the Aetheling, it actually was the equivalent of the heir apparent because there was no one else who could be. He was, as you mentioned, the only legitimate male son of the king. So what do we know about him? Well, we know, first of all, this very strange king who I've told you about, Henry I, was a, uh, a loving father and later grandfather. He took, he took that very seriously, which was quite unusual, I think, at the time for a monarch. Um, but what he did was invest all his hopes in this boy. And we know from the chroniclers that he took great care with him. He had him as a young boy accompany him uh, as a witness to documents. And then uh, there were plenty of years of warfare between Henry I and his French uh, great rival, Louis VI of France. And for four years before the white ship sank, Henry had been fighting Louis VI to get the French king to acknowledge his son as Duke of Normandy. And um, Henry took his son to diplomatic uh, events where he was arguing that for his right to be uh, the, the rightful Duke of Normandy as opposed to his brother who was still in the prison. And he was obviously grooming him to be his heir in a, in a very thoughtful way, engaging him in things as a young man. Because um, he, he was really about 10 when he was first engaged in what we would consider roles of government. And um, what do we know about him? Well, it's, it, what's difficult is that all the sources are, are church ones, they're ecclesiastical writers. And of course, they see the hand of God in everything. And one of the problems for Henry I was, because he was, I mean, effectively a, a, a very hard-nosed king, um, there was always a, a people who would say that God was going to punish him for being so harsh. And there was also a suspicion over Henry's marriage. He had married a princess of Scotland, uh, another Matilda. There's an awful lot of Matildas. Hmm. And uh, she was a saintly person who founded uh, hospitals for lepers and all sorts of very good works. But the suspicion was that she had been a nun uh, as a young girl. And that would have made it impossible for her then to marry a man. You know, she was effectively wed to God. Um, there was a, a, a church examination at Lambeth into whether she had been a nun. It was quite clear she had worn um, a nun's habit at one stage, but she maintained that was so she wouldn't be raped by marauding Normans. And rather reluctantly, the Archbishop Anselm uh, agrees to her becoming queen, but there is always this taint. So why I'm giving this background is because when William the Aetheling dies in the white ship, people are looking for God's reason for doing this. So there must be something wrong with him for somebody so with so much power and um, lineage and, and, and a very magnificent future to be deprived of all that and drowned must mean that God didn't like him. So I, I, find, I found a lot of the chroniclers were saying how spoiled he was, mm. how obnoxious he was. Uh, there was a story that he viewed the Anglo-Saxons as a sub, 
uh, as a sort of untermensch, you know, as a sort mm-hmm. of uh, species not quite as good as the Normans, and that he had promised when he was king he would put them to the yoke. But I don't know how much of that's true. It's very hard to tell, and how much of it is just trying to work out why on earth God killed him. And um, he seems to me a sort of he loved his he loved fine clothes, as did his set. Uh, he was the centre of a, of a sort of hard-living aristocratic group, which is sort of inevitable, I guess, if you're a teenage king-to-be. I don't know how you'd have avoided that. I mean, apparently he was a very handsome boy, although, again, the chroniclers, basically, if you were royal, you were either beautiful or handsome, as far as I could see. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's very hard to get a picture of him. He was flattered by the attention of the crew of the white ship. They were absolutely thrilled to have him as their passenger on the voyage um, 900 years ago from Barfleur to Southampton on the south coast of England. And in return for their adulation, he bought the crew three huge units of wine for them to enjoy with his friends. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, when I was at my most crass talking to the publishers, I said this is the, this is Titanic meets Game of Thrones, but there is an element of sliding doors in it too, because the one man who gets off benefits hugely, as you say. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. So let, let's um, let's get into the detail of, of this ship sinking. Yes. Tell me, why were why was William the Etheling and, and his father Henry, why were they in Buffalo? And what is this white ship? Mm. Uh, where did it come from? Why, were, why was William sailing on it? Mm-hmm. Well... It's so incredible. I mean, I, what's so bizarre about this story is that if it was fiction, you'd think, oh, that's a bit much. So Henry I appears in Barflower, which is the favourite port for stop-off from Normandy to uh, England of, of anyone of note, really. In good weather, it's a 10 to 12-hour uh, journey, and it's very easy, and that's where they go, the royal family and people like that. Henry I has spent four years campaigning against Louis VI of France, and he's finally won the war. He's had his son acknowledged by his great enemy. He's done everything he wants to. So he arrives in Barflow in triumph. When he gets there, the wind's against them. He's already got his own ship worked out, the ship he always has. It's going to take him back home. And a man comes forward who is the captain of the white ship, and he, he gets an audience with Henry and tries to not bribe him, but give him a tribute in return for him changing his mind and going on the white ship. Mm. And he's we have a we have eyewitness accounts of him selling the white ship to the king. And he and he also points out that it would be his honor to take the king back because it had been his father's great privilege to captain the Mora, which was the ship that William the Conqueror took as his flagship on the invasion of England in 1066. So he's appealing to Henry's um, ideas of continuity and, and, and the sort of reverence that people had for William the Conqueror. But Henry's fixed in his ways. He's, he's in his 50s. He's quite used to doing things his own way. And he says, no, I, I'm, I'm actually fine. But it would be enormous fun for my son and his friends and various other uh, children of the king, actually, the illegis- a couple of the illegitimate children, to go on the white ship. It was obviously a very special ship to look at. We know, again, from this speech of the captain uh, that she must have been white. Now, I, I've looked into that 
that there's a huge crossover in culture from Viking culture to Norman culture, even at this time. The ships are not much evolved from the ones you'd see in the Bayeux tapestry. They're clinker-built, that is, they are uh, that one plank across, uh, across the next one and then hammered together. And they're very, you know, they're fast. They're Viking ships. This is what it is. It's a, it's a large Viking ship with a particularly large crew of oarsmen, which was another thing. It was going to be very fast to get across. And did the king want to get there before everyone else? But he wasn't interested in that. And um, we know, I, I think it must have been lime-washed white, probably, rather than painted white, which doesn't make sense. And it was obviously a stunning ship uh, to look at. Now, I think at this stage, you, 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 it's, it's clear from the list of passengers I have that it was a gang of, it was a clique who got together on there. Well, the most powerful nobleman uh, who wasn't royal uh, in England was Richard, Earl of Chester, and his father was a great royal favourite who had died quite young, from, basically from obesity, as far as I could see. He couldn't walk because uh, he was so fat. And um, he ends up having this son who was taken in really as a sort of, uh, as the king's adopted nephew almost. And he's brought up as part of the royal family. So he gets on board with his entourage and he's married the king's niece, um, and it seems to be all of the, the, the main body of aristocrats who got on were connected to the Earl of Chester, who was by far the most powerful non-royal in England. And then you have really a snapshot. The first half of the book is building up what made Henry so effective. And I've already mentioned how incredibly powerful a lot of the lords were. Henry was very much about trust. And he did maintain trust with some of the hereditary figures in England. But otherwise, he brought in a very meritocratic system of men who were entirely beholden to him and his favour. Um, or Derek Vitalis, who's one of the great chroniclers of the time, wrote about how he raised men from the dust. Uh, it was a strategy to give him a, a system of governance that relied on the crown's favour rather than potentially troublesome aristocrats. And there's a large body of those get on this ship too. They're very powerful in their own right, but their power is built on Henry, uh, not on their lineage. Also, two of his greatest knights, who were famous from the wars they just had, uh, got on. And it's an extraordinary point. There are 18 women on there who have the rank of countess or princess. So you have, it really is, chock full of the most important people in Anglo-Norman society, of which there are 250, and there are 50 in the crew. And they really do chance their arm, really, in terms of superstition in the, in the, in the medieval mind. They're having a rip-roaring party at, ashore. Well, you know, the, the, the boat is, is lined up. The crew's getting drunk. The passengers are getting drunk. And then right at the last minute, one of one or two of the uh, passengers get off because they're worried about it. They're worried about the state of the crew. And one of these passengers that gets off is somebody who'll become incredibly important later in the story. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, you know, when I was at my most crass talking to the publishers, I said, this is, the, this is Titanic meets Game of Thrones, but there is an element of sliding doors in it too, because the one man who gets off benefits hugely, as you say. But the, um, it's an extraordinary cross-section of the successful years of Henry I, his first 20 years, are on that one ship. And then, if I can give the game away, yes, yeah, so they, they set off. Well, but they, they, uh, some priests come to the... Well, they, to the that's it. They, so they, they, they don't do... So people... I, I was interested, actually. I, I, one of the chapters I write about the early 12th century Anglo-Norman attitude towards the sea... And of course, people didn't know anything much about the sea, except it was very beautiful sometimes and very dangerous often. And they didn't know what was under the waves at all. I mean, you know, they, they, the good mariners learnt where the rocks were, etc. But if you look at the uh, poetry from that time or maps from that time, it, the sea is just full of terrifying species, you know, sea goats, uh, sea elephants. Mm. Um, think of any animal, and it has a, 
a, a sort of devilish counterpoint under the waves. And they didn't realize, you know, that, that drowning was considered the most painful way to go. And um, so one way of countering this, of course, was getting God's blessing before you sailed. And it was common with a, an important ship like that for monks to come and bless the ship. Well, unfortunately, on this occasion, the uh, passengers were so drunk that when the monks turned up, they were chased away. And so later, of course, the chroniclers saw this as inviting the doom that came along. And then they, they're all shouting and bellowing. Uh, it probably set sail just for midnight on the 25th of November, 1120. Large crowd watched them go. First of all, because there were lots of relatives of people who were sailing, but others had come really to have a good look at this very glamorous uh, bunch of people on one ship. And they push out to sea. The helmsman is drunk and the crew are out of order. What would be normal in these circumstances was to be get, get well out of the harbour with the oars and then drop the sail. So my theory is, because we know the sail was dropped too soon, the helmsman, who knew the area very well, he was from Barfleur, because he was drunk, because they were going at a hell of a speed. The, the rowers were bending their backs to try and catch up with the king who had set off a few hours before. There is one big rock. I mean, it's a rocky coast along that part of Normandy, but there's one big rock which you really would expect to avoid uh, called the Quay Boeuf, which is still there. And they hit it at full speed. And I think that they, they'd gone so fast in that one mile from the harbour that the helmsman hadn't realised quite how far they were. And they hit it extremely hard. And the... Uh, sailors use hooks to try and push the boat clear. All they do is uh, make it worse. And that they are the first casualties, the ones with the hooks, they get washed away. It's, it's quite a still night, actually. It's freezing. Late November, we know that there was frost in the air. And then by pushing at these planks in a clinker-built boat, they start to open up. They snap open. And once one opens, there's no, there's no plan B. You're open to the, the sea then. And you're a mile from... Harbor. Yep. Interestingly, the people of Barfla heard them shout. There was a big cry they heard. But they just assumed that the party had gone up a notch on the ship and they all went home and thought nothing of it. Apparently, the cry was so loud that people on the king's ship, which was, you know, sort of 10 miles ahead, heard it, which I've looked at scientifically. It is possible but I think it's unlikely. I think they wanted to associate with this drama by thinking they had heard it. They probably heard a seagull or something. But anyway, it must have been a, <laughs> a, a loud noise. And But nobody was coming. It was the middle of the night, and um, nobody knew what had happened, even though they're only a mile away. I, I, I do try and bring in just a little bit of uh, modern science to work out what happened. Well, first of all, I don't think anyone could swim. I mean, very, very few people could swim at this time. It was not uh, a pastime and it was, you know, people bathed in rivers or whatever, but there were very, very few people who swam. Maybe if you were from a fishing community, there were people who could fish to retrieve a net that was, or, or an anchor or something, but that was rare. But the real killer that night was the cold. And there is this um, scientific thing, it's called cold water shock. If you, if you as a human being are immersed in very cold water suddenly, uh, you, you basically get, uh, you will gulp in water and um, your muscles are uncontrollable. And most of them would have died very quickly, especially as they were wearing heavy clothes to counter the, um, the cold of a November night. Were there lifeboats? There was one lifeboat. And um, so the king had nearly been assassinated the year before. And um, he had upped the bodyguards for himself and his son as a result. And the bodyguards on the white ship, they, they leave everyone else. They leave the king's treasure chest, which has been put on the white ship, and they bundle William the Eighthling into the one rowing boat, and they start to get him away. And at this stage, there are two men who have scrambled onto a bit of broken mast. One is uh, a man called Delegue, who comes from an aristocratic fighting family. And then the other one is a fantastic figure, Barreau the Butcher from Rouen, who is the humblest man on board, uh, apart from the crew. And he gets on top of this bit of wood. And he's the only one who's properly dressed for this disaster. So he's wearing a goatskin tunic. 
And again, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I've learned these things. So even when you're wet, uh, wool will maintain its, its warmth or the capacity for warmth. And so while these other people were probably in fine silks and furs, uh, which were sodden if they had actually got out at all, they were obviously going to be struck by hypothermia. He managed to survive and he saw the prince being getting away. But there's this moment which has always sort of haunted anyone who knows this story where the prince's sister, uh, Margaret of Perch, she's a countess, um, one of one of Henry's illegitimate daughters, is furious when she sees him getting away and starts screaming for him to come back and insults his manhood for leaving his sister to die. And William orders his crew to turn around the boat to go and get her. Well, there are so many people thrashing around for their life in the water. And when they see this rowing boat, they try and clamber on board and they go down. Uh, and the prince goes down. And everyone is pretty much dead apart from, at this stage, I think there's a handful of survivors. There's, there's the, the butcher and the knight on their bit of broken mast. And the captain of the ship swims to them. He says, where's the prince? And they tell him the news of what just happened. And he knows that Henry is not one to be trifled with, so he allows himself to die because he can't. I mean, he would have probably died anyway, but he doesn't want to be given the terrifying prospect of having to explain what happened to Henry's three children who died. Uh, and he just lets himself drift under and is never seen again. So on the night of 25th to 26th of November, the ship goes down, William the Ethelin goes down, Beryl the Butcher survives to yes. tell the story, which is how we know the the, um, the dramatic details which you describe so well in the book. When does Henry find out that he's lost oh. his 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 legitimate son, two of his illegitimate children, and beyond that, his whole plan for the Anglo-Norman mm-hmm. realm? When does the news uh, arrive at Henry? Well, Henry arrives the next day in Southampton and then retreats to one of his hunting lodges in the New Forest uh, in Hampshire. And very quickly, people know something's gone wrong with the white ship because it is a clear night. There's no storm to have washed it or to another port. or There's no possible explanation except it's gone, uh, it, it's sunk. But the confirmation comes when Barrow the Butcher is discovered the next morning by a fisherman and he tells them what happened. They go aboard, they look along the coast, there are some bodies there. And... Um, Within a day, the news has reached southern England, but nobody wants to tell Henry because he is this... I mean, even on a good day, he's terrifying. But he loved his children uh, and nobody wanted to tell him. And he has nephews there. Uh, and you have to realise that the courtiers who are with him, they they are all aware. They all have relatives or friends who they now know have drowned. And they try and hide their uh, sorrow from the king so he doesn't ask them. And then eventually... They persuade, the courtiers persuade a young boy to tell the king. And he goes in to, walks into the king and falls on the ground and spews out this terrible news. And the king bellows and falls down on the ground in shock and despair. And then is carried away by his closest attendants to sort of digest the news and to come to terms with it. He is as you would expect, completely devastated, takes to his bed, goes into denial, orders uh, the coast to be checked in case the the boat, the ship, the white ship somewhere else. And when he realizes that it is true, you know, he's lost all these people who, who are basically the, the cornerstone of his ambitions. Um, he takes to bed and doesn't eat for a very long time until one of his closest confidants uh, who comes from a long line of men who've uh, been close to the Dukes of Normandy, etc., tells him, you know what? All this crying is not going to bring him back and it's just going to make your enemies stronger. He says, crying is for women, not for kings, and you've got to get on with it. And he does get up. And of course, you know, he, uh, he, he actually lives another 15 years. And So in, the, in that 15 years, this, this strikes us with all the benefit of hindsight as ample opportunity uh, for him to marry again, as he does, Adelita of Louvain, produce another legitimate heir. He doesn't do that. So that leaves him then with one legitimate child, 
Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit about this character who's not yet really appeared on our radar, his daughter, mm. Matilda. Yes. Well, Matilda's had a conventional uh, life up until this point. She's married off to um, the future Emperor Henry V. In Germany. In Germany. And he, yeah, he controls a, a huge swathe of Central Europe, um, from sort of Vienna to Lyon and modern-day Belgium down to Italy. Um and he's a lot older. They have a spectacular marriage when she's still a little girl. The greatest ceremony that anyone alive can remember or even has heard of. It's a uniquely glamorous match. It's a huge moment for Henry I because he had seized the throne. So to have his daughter acknowledged as the Empress of Europe, effectively, or Central Europe, uh, is a feather in his hat. Um and she is brought up in a different way of governance, royal governance. So when her husband is off fighting as a civil wars in Germany or he's fighting the Pope, she's left with real power. She's not just a, 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 a sort of adjunct to the king. She is, she is a proper regent, I guess. She reigns in his place and she's used to delivering law, quite stiff law. I mean, I, there's one, she's... Uh, called upon to judge between an abbot and a bishop. And when she makes her ruling, she attaches a, an imperial uh, clause to it, which says nobody's allowed to question it. So it's a, it's a very different way of ruling. And then the emperor dies, as, uh, when he's in, uh, 38, dies of cancer, and she's left as this widow, very highly regarded. Uh, she's known as a, a, as, a, as a good thing, as empress. But her husband's uh, legacy is hijacked and it's clear that the next emperor is going to be somebody who is uh, an enemy of his. She realizes she has no future in Central Europe. She's offered various German princes as husbands, but she goes back to her father. And she's now this incredibly eligible heiress. And Henry uses her for his dynastic purposes. And he persuades her to marry a much younger um, uh, man, Geoffrey, who is the son of the Count of Anjou. And Anjou and Normandy have had a very protracted uh, enmity for, 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 for uh, generations. It's difficult for Matilda to swallow this. First of all, she's marrying a boy. She's a woman. And secondly, she's being downgraded from, well, she was never actually crowned empress, but she considers herself empress down to a countess. But she does it for her father. And Henry needs to disable the uh, the House of Anjou, the Angevins, uh, because they're being effective allies against him with France. And the, Anjou is a very important piece of this, actually, because the widow of the boy who dies on the white ship, she was another child of the Count of Anjou. So, you know, we think of Anjou as a small part of France now, but it was a very, very important county um, in, in the sort of Anglo-Norman story for, for a long time, and it produces the Plantagenets, of course. So Henry brings his daughter, or his daughter comes back to Henry, um, and instead then of, uh, as it transpires, producing another heir with his second wife, Henry decides to load the future of England and Normandy, and by extension Anjou, because uh, Matilda's married Geoffrey Plantagenet, um, heir to the, the, the county of Anjou, decides to load the whole future of this realm onto his daughter. Mm. He forces the barons to swear homage to her. This is extraordinary, isn't it? I yes. Mean, in an age that is patriarchal, that is, uh, is if political terms as well as social terms, a macho, manly, male culture. What on earth was a political um, wizard <laughs> and man's man in many ways, like Henry thinking in, in loading all this onto Matilda. Mm. Well, Henry was, in our, you know, in our parlance, he was as sexist as anyone, um, and he made a distinction. After, I think it was about seven years of not producing another male heir or any child, actually, with his second wife, he uh, announces to his lords that he acknowledges that the white ship has been a national catastrophe and it has deprived him of his heir, but he would like 
them all to swear to acknowledge Matilda as his successor. It's very different being heir and successor. What Henry was asking for was people to be loyal to her, to recognize her as queen, but really she was a stepping stone dynastically. She, by the time Henry died, had had some sons, um, the eldest one called Henry, and Henry was really trying to use her as somebody to pass on the battle to his grandson. But he couldn't do that without having her made queen. And the Anglo-Saxon word from which queen comes from, quen, is, does not mean ruler. It means the, the consort, the wife of a king. It, there is no concept at this time of a woman ruling by herself. Um, it's a very alien idea. Henry becomes completely transfixed by this problem of his succession and it dominates his last 15 years. The 15 years after the white ship is the one thing that really does irk him. When he dies, he must have thought, well, I've dealt with that because at least once, many of them twice, the um, the leading bishops, abbots and uh, aristocracy, both in England and Normandy, had sworn to recognise his wish and Matilda was going to become queen. It's a staggering thing. It says so much about the role of women in society at the time that really as soon as he died, very few people bothered to even think about that. And when the one man who got off the white ship of any note, um, Henry's nephew, Stephen of Blois, he, he races for the crown. And Stephen of Blois was a very popular uh, chap, good warrior, and crucially male, and he snaps up the crown with all sorts of promises, which he doesn't observe. So we can say then, probably, that Henry I has been too clever by halves. Instead of uh, trying to produce another child or, you know, choose, say, one of his illegitimate children, Robert Gloucester or whatever, as his, as his heir, he said, no, we're going to skip a generation. My daughter Matilda's son is going to be a king. She's mm. going to hold the, hold the crown. 1135, Henry dies, and all of this falls to pieces. Oh, my goodness. It's the most spectacular disintegration of his entire dream. So tell us tell us just briefly in the last <clears throat> yes. five minutes, what are the consequences uh, of this decision that stems from the white ship going down mm. and Henry's decision to pass on the crown to a joint uh, English-Norman Angevin there? Yeah, it's so difficult. So the, the real problem is, first of all, there is no understanding of how a queen can rule. Because medieval rule at this stage, a lot of it is leading armies into battle and nobody's prepared to follow a woman into battle. Um, secondly, uh, Henry has, although he's come to terms with the historic hatred of Anjou and Normandy for each other, the people who are left in charge of the lands are well aware of the problems and they do not, they, they, Geoffrey Plantagenet, um, the, the son of the Count of Anjou, is, is a very unpopular figure with the Normans. And at the same time, somebody does just rush and take the crown. And again, you have to think in medieval terms. So um, when somebody was anointed king, they were believed to be, uh, to, to, to sort of transform from being merely human to being God's representative on earth. Very hard to unpick that. And so for about three years, Stephen who becomes king. There are problems with the Scots, who uh, the King of Scotland uh, wants Matilda to have the crown, and he also wants to take advantage of a, uh, a complicated situation in England to further the Scottish claim to the north of England. But essentially, Stephen's okay until Matilda arrives with an army and a proper civil war begins, and which is... And this war is the anarchy. Yeah, and it couldn't... It, it is aptly named. It, it's a complete bloodbath also known as the shipwreck. Yes, yes. Uh, sort of aptly given the, the events that you've so brilliantly described in this book that, that lead to it. Um, we could do another hour talking about the anarchy, <laughs> the, the war between Stephen and Matilda. But the upshot is that uh, after nearly 20 years of intermittent civil war, actually, against all the odds, really, Henry I, long dead, gets his way, doesn't he? Because mm. Henry, his grandson Henry becomes Henry II. And so it all comes good, but it's after utter chaos. I mean, the anarchy was a period, I think it was, it's about as um, tumultuous a time as Britain's ever, ever suffered. And, uh, you know, it was just, it, was all, it all stems from the sinking of one ship. So you mentioned about the Titanic. So that's why I think 
I maintain this is the most disastrous maritime moment in British history. Because, yeah, the Titanic is extraordinary in its scale and the glamour of the people on board. But this was an entire uh, royal family destroyed. The Plantagenets come in as a result of the shipwreck. Uh, Henry I is left bereft, but also without his key people. It's an extraordinary thing for one ship to bring such calamity to a nation. And it's a story that you've told amazingly with uh, all of your usual cinematic brio, (laughs) uh, elegance, uh, great turns of phrase um, in this new book, The White Ship, Charles Spencer. Um, Thank you so much for telling me about this fantastic story. Uh, I highly recommend this wonderful book to uh, everyone listening to this podcast. Um, And it's just been a pleasure hearing you describe it all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. That was Charles Spencer in conversation with Dan Jones. The White Ship is out now, published by William Collins. Dan has also authored several best-selling books on the medieval era. Most recently, Crusaders, an epic history of the wars for the Holy Lands, which was published in 2019 by Head of Zeus. You can read a version of this interview in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now and also contains articles on the Vikings, Hitler and Stalin, the Regency era and medieval queens. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Helen Fry about escaping from Nazi-occupied Europe. (laughs) 